Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. Welcome to a fresh episode of the Human Technology Podcast. This week I will do an episode that is maybe a little heavier, maybe a little longer at the very end. And um, that covers, from my point of view, a super important Aspect And I ran over this um, thing when I was searching some file on my hard drive. And I found the concept of a workshop I did a couple of years ago for a client. And they were very satisfied with what I did at my client. And I don't know why I didn't pick that one up and uh, why I did not de develop it on further Maybe it's also worth writing a book about this uh, um, aspect of, of uh, professional life of NHMI designer, of a usability expert. It's definitely worth making a podcast episode out of it. And so, this is it today. Um, it is called the 3P tool, the 3P principle that I'm having. Before I get into it, what 3P mean, means, uh, a little bit about the background. So we as HMI, Human Machine Interface Designers, Usability, UI Designers, Graphic Designers, we have a specific problem. If, if some human, um, a man or a woman, takes a piece of technology and uses this, he or she is having immediately, within milliseconds, an emotional reaction on this technology. And this is for everyone. This is for regular Janes and Joes. This is for experts. This is for CEOs of tech companies. This is for product leaders, product managers, project leaders, whoever is involved in this one. Chefs in restaurants or architects or product designers, they're having exactly the same problem. So if, if you go into a restaurant and, and you have a nice dinner, you will like it. Or if, if it's not that nice, you will not like it. You, 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 you see it, you smell it, you taste it and you say, ah, oh, that's great. Or you say, mm, well, it's not so much my taste. And that's okay. And you have right away a suggestion that, okay, there could have been a little more spice in that, or there could have been a little less cream in this, or you have an idea right away. Same for, for architects. If you walk through a city and you see a building, you right away have 
a uh, an emotional reaction. You say, "Hey, I, I like it. This is a building." But you, you say, "I hate it." Or you have the idea, "Yes, um, the windows could be a little larger," or "I don't like the color of uh, of 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 uh, the, the walls." And so you have an immediate reaction on this one. This is a good thing, and this is also a bad thing at the same time. And the good good part of it is we do something with the technology we develop and, and we, we change humans and we have the chance to change them for the better if, if we do something. And the downturn of it is that all the people, and this is for all of these, but, but particularly for HMI developers, that the uh, CEOs, CTOs, um, all these guys, the bosses and, and, and the project leaders, and that, that they all have this exact, totally human and normal reaction. And that they try to influence and say, hey, why don't we do it like this? Why don't we do it like that? The art that we as HMI designers know or that we need to play is that we do not design it for one single person. So if, if one person says, why don't you put that menu point down there? Why don't you use a green color here instead of a red one? Why don't you do this or that? It will be okay. It will be easy to understand. It will be more their taste. It will be easier to use for this one particular person. The art that we know is we make it good for 80%, 90% of the audience if you go to, to 95%, if 95% of, of users love your product because you have designed it well, I mean, then you are the king or the queen of HMI design. You're, you're far better than, than all the others. Plus the fact, and this adds up to this, uh, is that, that everybody can talk about it. I have never seen, I had one big boss that showed up at the laboratories of the hardware and software guys at the desks and discussed bits and bytes with them. But the majority of these management guys, they just want that software or that hardware to work. And they, they don't un really understand it and they will not discuss it. They, they, they will never go to a software developer and say, why, why don't you put that line of code down here and not up there? Or why, well, to, to, at a hardware developer, why don't you put that chip on the other side of the PCB? And they, they don't do this, but they do this with HMI. They come there and say, hey, why don't you rename this menu to XYZ? This is what's happening. So that, that's one part of the problem, um, one fact that we have. The other one is that HMI development is depending on a high number of external factors. Who is my user? What kind of application do I have? What context of use do I have? What are the cultures that my technology is used in? And all these factors, they somehow interact. So if you have maybe an older user in Asia, um, that is totally different than the younger user in Africa. If you have, uh, yeah, if you have a, a context at, uh, at night in a moving vehicle, um, things may be totally different than compared to a smartphone in, uh, in, in a bright environment, but noisy environment. So 
all of them interact somehow, they influence each others, and this this very much ends up then in the in, in the answer it depends, which is uh, the most used phrase amongst uh, HMI developers. So very often people in conference they approach and say, "Hey Peter, what 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 is the best automotive HMI out there on the market?" I said, it depends. It depends on what kind of person you are, what kind of brand message this car company has, what um, the use cases are you want to cover, where is this car sold, and yeah, so some things may work better in China, but not as good in Europe, and vice versa. And then we have different markets. So I, I have one project at the moment where they want to go to um, uh, Southeast Asia and South America. So totally different cultures. I have to work myself into it. I have to know it. And so solutions that work in maybe China, they will not work in Southeast Asia. Things that work in North America will not work in, in South America. So you have all this. And so this makes it a little soft. And this gives the impression to these techie guys, to these hard guys, that we, we are, we as HMI developers are very intuitive. And we do it because we think it's okay. And we're painting a couple of colorful pictures and we are doing all the strange psychology stuff. And we do not have any hard figures and numbers and data and facts we rely on. Which is wrong, as, as we know. And we have to communicate this. We have to tell, guys, this is wrong. We have all these numbers and figures and facts um, that, that uh, we can, can rely on. And to get out of this gap, that these two problems we have, this, this uh, let's say, chef or architecture problem on one side, everybody has an opinion, everybody wants to be involved. And on the other side, this little artsy, intuitive, psychological image that HMI design has. To get out of this, I have designed the 3P tool, the 3P principle. And 3P, of course, there are three words that uh, start with a P. Um, that's processes, parameters, and personality. The processes, how do you do things? How do you develop an HMI correctly? Second one, parameters, what do you do? What are the things um, that you can tweak, that you can optimize? Where are the points that you can start rethinking, designing, and doing things. And the third one is personality. How do you position yourself? How do you communicate? How do you talk to the others? How do you tell them, guys, I'm a serious developer here. I'm not some kind of funny add-on. Um, the artsy guy that, that is good for, for, for marketing or things, but I am doing the things that make your technology better in this. Now, how do you do this? And how do you put yourself into the right position? Those are the three P um, I will talk about. And I will, it will be a very rough run over uh, the processes, the parameters, and the personalities. And each of them would be worth at least two or three episodes um, of, of a podcast. But I want to squeeze it in here to create an awareness that will help you to think into the right directions. So let's start with the processes. 
I'm using a three-step process, which is similar to the user-centered process of Deborah Mayu. She is one of the big girls of uh, usability engineering, of user-centered designs, of user experience design. And she created that one. She put that out in a pretty complex way and it is very useful to have this. I have reduced this to three specific steps. Um, you start with an idea and you end with a product. And in between, you do three things. Analyze, create, and implement. I will give you a quick overview on what this means. So analyze is the step where you think, what kind of product do I have? Is this a smartphone app? Is this a car? Is this a desktop application? Is this a specific medical device? Who is my user group? Do I have professionals like doctors or nurses in a hospital that are educated, that are under time pressure, that take responsibility for human lives? Or is this some kind of super funny app for young kids um, that uh, is used in, in, uh, in school breaks? Um, is not having any, how, let's say, serious impact on lives or health or no dangerous part in that. Who is my user group by means of where are they living? How are they thinking? So is this more a, for example, an Arabic-focused user group? Yeah, so you have this BD, uh, bidirectional HMI problem yeah, in Hebrew and Arabic. They're right from, writing from the right to the left. And there are parts of that, like phone numbers or names, they are written from left to right. And so you have BD, bidirectional in there you have to take different different uh, design paradigms into account if you have this kind of user group there is a lot of um, regulation out there in medical devices um, you, you're not allowed to use red as a color because you believe red is a nice color there is an information connotated to red and that is legal, legally binding so if you design a medical device and, and you make a red frame just because you like it around something uh, you will not get the approval to to put this in into the market you need to think about the history of a company uh, in very very seldom um, uh, contexts uh, I had the chance to start from scratch from zero Usually there is something, there is a device out there, make it a little better, turn it around here. We have found out um, that uh, our HMI is not working properly with our users. Hey Peter, um, can you do this? But we have this corporate font, we have this corporate color set, and uh, we're using this wording and our users are used to this and so we want to have this. And yeah, So there is a ground to stand on by means of there's something there, there's a certain history, there's a heritage in this company that you have to take into account. And you do this analysis, you run through all of this. Um, this is what I call in the breathing in phase, yeah? learning a lot about what users are. I had a client and we had a project of about three months and the first six, seven weeks, all I was doing is was asking them, what is, who's your user group? Who's doing that? And what are they thinking? What have you found out? What are your scenarios? What are your use cases? 
right? trying to suck as much information out of my client as I could. And they were asking me, hey, why are you asking? What are you doing? I said, okay, I'm breathing in at the moment. And then in the next phase, in the creation phase, I will breathe out and you will get all the results that I have created. So that is the first step, the analysis phase in the process part of the 3P principle. Second one is the creation phase. And in this creation phase, the first thing you should do is wear the shoes of your user. There is a principle called design thinking. Uh, made a couple of months ago, I made a, um, a podcast episode about design thinking. Very interesting toolbox, very interesting way of thinking, very interesting philosophy um, that, that is behind this. And this is combining the analysis phase and the creation phase. And they claim, and I fully support it, uh, where the shoes of your users. What are their emotions? What are their targets? What are their experiences? And once you have this, you turn this into a persona. You say, okay, um, I'm, I'm creating this persona. And, and the, the, the term persona comes from the antique, ancient Greece, Greece Greek Greek theaters, these Greek theaters, um, the, the actors, they had masks that were saying, okay, he's the good guy and he's the bad guy and she's the good girl and she's the bad girl. And they're wearing these masks to indicate who is who on stage. And they were called personas. In HMI development and technology development, a persona is a concept that you use to create one person, one artificial person. It's not a real person. It is a person that, that you create. And this represents either your entire user group or a significant part of your user group. In the second case, you will need more than one persona. And the first part, one persona, is sufficient. And you give it a name, you say, okay, this is Susan. Susan is 34 years old. She is uh, running an online business. Uh, she's an entrepreneur in the startup arena. She is uh, very technology-oriented. She's always using the latest products, and she loves to be surrounded by technology, and so on and so on. So you describe this. And she's loving this um, sports brand. She's supporting these sports teams, and whatever is relevant. And then you say, okay, um, what are the pain points of this person? How can I meet, or what, what, what is the biggest pain point she's having? And maybe you find out it is um, that she's having far too many instances in the interaction with all these electronic devices she's having. Okay, pain point, too many interaction instances. We need to reduce that. Now, what, what, what is she getting out of this? Easier job, past the focus, making more money. Yeah, all these things, they are part of the persona. And the second thing you then do is um, you think about the roles that people have. So in cars, for example, driver versus passengers, driver versus mechanic, owner versus chauffeur versus driver. There's something we in the Western world don't really think about, but in large parts of, for example, China or Saudi Arabia or the general, the Arabian world, 
the guy, the person that owns the car is not sitting behind the steering wheel. He or she is sitting on the rear seat. Yeah? And somebody that did not buy it, that was not involved in the decision, and somebody that whose taste is not at all anyhow important, or yeah, that, that, that is driving the car. And that makes a huge difference. So that, that's part of the persona. Then what you do is you create scenarios. So, okay, what, what is a typical user scenario that I'm having? So, Susan, 34-year-old uh, uh, startup entrepreneur, is getting up in the morning. And uh, first she is checking um, the charging level of her car. Then is she is running through her mails and her voice box messages. And so you create this one and you represent all the problems this person may be facing into one story. And create as many problems as you can think of and show the solutions that are in there. And out of this, you create use cases. For example, checking the charging stages of a car from my kitchen desk. That could be a use case. Or... Um, Fast charging of the smartphone because it was forgotten to be plugged in in the evening. Or answering a mail call while um, making breakfast. Yeah? So all these could be use cases and you identify them. And based on that, you then you have all the analysis data, you have uh, your personas, you have your scenarios and use cases and all that together... That is something you use as a base for the creativity phase. And you get really crazy when you do brainstorming, when you do scamper, when you do SIT sessions, when you do 10 times session. You think about this and how can we solve all these problems? How can we get out of this? And with this result, then you create a generic concept. You take this and you make, make a very generic concept. So, okay, we're going to use a touch screen. And on the left side, we will have this. On the right side, we will have that. You may use a wireframing. And my, my development very often uses paper and pencil wireframes. I stand in front of my client with a flip chart or a whiteboard. I have a pen in my hand and I draw it and say, here, this is like this and this is like that. One, one of my clients had in every meeting room um, glass walls. So one wall of every meeting room was of glass and they had pens you, can, you could use to write on glass. And so we had a chance to, with a couple of, of uh, uh, lines, to, to sketch a vehicle dashboard. So, okay, this is our dashboard and where do we put this and where to... And, and was possible on a one-to-one -one frame, sorry. <coughs> on a one-to-one -one scale... And it was super easy to, to, to uh, correct. You just had a cloth, you took away the steering wheel and you made it a little larger or a little smaller or you put the display from, from the lower end to the upper end of the center stack. Whatever. All possible. This is wireframing. And there are tools for wireframing that you can use, um, that you can get interactive with this one. And once you have this, you can go out and ask your first uh, potential or members of your potential users group and discuss it with them saying hey do you like this or how could we do this are we on the right track are, are we addressing the right 
points? Uh, are we solving the right problems? Are we answering your questions with this one? Uh, so, so we start with that. And then in various rounds, you get more and more detailed and you get into lo-fi prototyping, very simple, very straightforward prototypes. Put them out again, have a look at this one and, and you get more and more detailed. You add more and more details to your concept. And on every step that you have, ideal in an ideal world, you make a user feedback group, you make a usability quality gate into it. And then at the very end, you have a high-end hi-fi prototype. And today, very often for these, even for the low-fi prototypes, but for the hi-fi prototyping, the same tool set is used as for the software implementation. 20 years ago, those were totally different worlds. You were defining something, you were putting that down on a specification. Today, you have a very smooth handover between the creativity part, between the designer's part, and the implementation part. And then, um, yeah, you pass this one on step by step and get into the third phase with the implementation phase. There, you usually have different people than in the first two phases. Um, they're not UX, UI people anymore. They're not designers. They're very often software guys. They know how to code. They know how to optimize code. They think in a totally different way than, than a designer or a psychologist does. Support them. Be there. You as a HMI person support these developers in whatever they do. All right. This is a very rough overview over the process. Let's move on to the second P of uh, the 3P tool. That is the parameters. And I will quickly go through two sets of parameters. One is the ISO 9241, part 110. They're the dialogue principles. And there are seven of them. And the, the ISO standard is a very good standard. It is good, it's global, but it's pretty generic. But yeah, the first one is suitability for the task. Do I have the right product to solve this problem? A friend of mine, she was an accountant and she used Excel to write letters. I said, hey, why do you do this? The appropriate tool, um, the, the suitable tool uh, to write a letter is Word. Why do you use Excel? And she says, yeah, there's always a calculation in there. I have to add figures and I have to add taxes and whatever. And so I'm using that function. So at the end, she was doing more like a, like a calculation thing, a table she put out. And so then Excel was the appropriate tool, was suitable for the task. But writing a letter word is better. So this is the first question. The, self, the second one is self-descriptiveness. The technology talks to users. It, it tells you, hey, press me here, swipe me there. Um, I'm, I'm doing this right now. I'm, I have, uh, I'm calculating at the moment. So it's constantly communicating. The problem here is, it needs to do this. It needs to tell the user, your HMI needs to tell the user what's next, what's happening now. If I want to fulfill this task, what do I do? What do I need to do next? 
Yeah, that that's that that's uh, the the biggest part here, and you need feedback on this one. It needs to be easy to understand. And third point, uh, conformity with user expectations. So this includes consistency. Um, this needs uh, to to analyze the uh, user, the mental model of of the user. So we, when we interact with a each and every one of us, when we interact with the technology, we bring in certain expectations. And they're based on experiences we had, on things we have heard somewhere, um, on, on uh, technologies we have used in the past. So we have our expectations. And as a developer, you need to know about these expectations. What is the majority of my users bringing in as expectations? And you have to be compatible with that you have to be have to create conformity in your HMI with the expectations your users bring in number four learnability it needs to be possible it has to be possible that users can learn your HMI if you start working with a device it may be very hard to understand now, let's take the example of an aircraft cockpit. When I get into it as a novice, um, into an aircraft cockpit, I have roughly any idea on what to do here. No clue. If you run through the education, years and years of education um, to become a pilot, you will learn this. And then you will find out, oh, this is pretty sufficient. This is pretty good. This is done very nicely. It's easy to use if you know how to do this if you learn this it's able to learn another example the um, comparison between a haptic input device in a car like the BMW iDrive for example and the touchscreen you can learn blind use with a haptic device you cannot learn blind use with a touchscreen so the learnability of the aspect blind use of touchscreens is extremely poor down to zero. Whereas for mechanical devices, it is possible. I'm using BMW iDrive since, I don't know, 20 years. Went through all the generations of it and I can use them blindly. I know this button is for that and then right to one, one click or two clicks to the right and press it. And yeah, I can do this with keeping my eyes on the road. So I learned this. Number five, controllability. The user needs to be in the driver's seat of the interaction. The user needs to be, or at least to have the feeling, that he or she is in the driver's seat, that everything is under control of the human. Then robustness against user error. Systems have to be able to tolerate user error and to allow an easy correction through the user. We often run into wrong menus, so we're not fully focused on, on, on the inputs we do and then uh, we're doing some things, some things wrong. And this shall not lead into a catastrophe, but it shall be easy to correct and say, oh, I'm in the wrong menu, where's the back button? I am in the, uh, I, I put the wrong address into it. I, did, I put the, the address of my third client of the day but not of the first client of my day into my navigation system i need to correct it yeah so this this is something you you, you need to do 
And number seven, um, that's the user connection. The system is inviting, it is motivating, and uh, this goes into user experience that people like, hey, I love it. I, I love to do these things with this. It's a great device and it's helping me a lot and it's fun using it. That is this one. So those were the seven um, parameters of the ISO 9241. There's another set that I'm using regularly that uh, was created by myself. It's somehow overlapping, but it is more practically oriented. And the first parameter out of this, it's eight parameters, um, is balance. The internal balance and the external balance. First one, internal balance. All right, let's start with the external balance. Um, what use cases do I have? What uses do I have? Where is my system used? You have to balance your HMI with this. And the internal balance is we are having three major components in an HMI. That's the input, the output, and the interaction design. What is between input and output? And you have to balance these. Many, many, many years ago, um, when I was at Harman, we had a client, a big American OEM car maker. They asked us to replace the touchscreen they had in the system with a rotary push device. I said, then, okay, guys, then, then we need to replace the menu structures and um, the, the screen designs as well, because what we did here is for touchscreen and for a rotary push device, we need to redesign it. Because you destroy the internal balance if you change one component of the HMI and you do not adapt the others. Then consistency also internally and externally. Internal consistency means a system is similar to itself. So if something works in a certain way in one sub menu, it shall work exactly the same way in all the other menus. Whether this is the best solution or the second best solution, it shall always be the same. And from my experience, the worst thing you can do is being inconsistent in your HMI because that will definitely destroy trust of your users and the usability of your system. External consistency means that if you bring in some experience from one technology, from one interaction, from one thing and you can transfer it into another one. I'm using always the uh, waste bin on uh, uh, on the dashboard of our computers. Yeah, that works exactly like uh, uh, the, the, the trash can um, in reality. You can put something in and as long as it's still in there, you can pull it out again. It's both the digital and the analog version. And if the cleaning lady comes or the cleaning uh, gentleman comes and... and throws away, it empties your trash can, you cannot get it back, and the same is for the digital one. This is external consistency. Next one is usefulness. So that brings us to the value of technology. My deepest belief is we need to put value in technology. We are using resources, we are using time, money, focus, uh, work lives into producing technology. And so it needs to create value, it needs to be useful, it needs to have a, a, a high level of, of usefulness if we do this. Next point, simplicity. At Harman, the CTO always said to me, hey, Peter, um, you have the simplest job, your job is the easiest in the entire company. You just make it simple, simply make it simple. And 
It's KISS. Keep it straight and simple. Nothing in HMI design is as complex as simplicity. Because it very much depends on the view you have on a system. It depends. If you have enormous amounts of complexity in most technical systems today, and what we do is, if we create something that looks simple, it's uh, the impression of simplicity that we have in there. And that's a delicate balance that we have to find to create the simplicity without cutting all the functions, without oversimplifying it. But again, it is about giving the user the feeling of control. If the user says, I'm in the driver's seat, I know exactly what to do, then you have simplicity. Personalization, we are all different. We all have different backgrounds. We have different expectations and use cases and contexts of use. So we need a certain amount of personalization. And the final one is emotionalization. Make it emotional. Put something in that users love and then you make it easier for them to interact with the system. All right, so those were the parameters. I had these two parameter sets, the ISO 9241 and my own set of parameters that will give you a uh, rough overview on how it is. Let's move on to the final P, the personality. During my professional life, I heard statements like, just because you fiddle around with the HMI, I don't sell a single additional car. Or, I have more than enough problems. I don't want to add more just because I integrate an HMI designer. Or, we can train the user. We don't need usability. We can train them. So, this is typical statements. And if you hear them, it's just like, what? I mean, we have all learned how important it is to make technology usable, to make it easy to use, to make it fascinating to use, to make a positive experience out of this. And then you hear statements like this. Or another one that I, if I say I love it, it's totally the wrong way. I hate it, but I find it so super typical. Do you know why there are so many women in HMI design? There is no money in it. And that was said to me by a guy that was sitting beside me on a usability conference. All right. I will use a... Um, picture or a concept of um, I will use a concept of Tony Robbins Anthony Robbins a um, high-end personality trainer um, a uh, motivational speaker very very cool guy and he says there are four points you can uh, work in you can think in if, if it is about motivating yourself it is about getting actions and it's a four corner, four corners uh, square that you have, and you can turn this into a positive loop or into a negative loop. He says, "Okay, you bring in your beliefs. Let's start with the beliefs. That's one of the points here. If you have the belief that it is not making any sense anyhow that I'm working here, or I am not the right person to do this, I cannot stand all these things, then you will not build out a potential." which is the second point. And if you have a low potential or no potential, you will not get into actions or into poor actions. And these actions 
if you don't perform them or if you perform them on a low level or if you're not fully focused on them, you will get poor results. And that will then feed your negative beliefs. So, hey, I told you, it doesn't work. It's never work. In this organization, it is not possible to do anything. They're killing all my great ideas. Then you have even more negative beliefs, which leads to even less potential. You're doing even less and then you do not have any actions anymore. You do not create results, which again feeds your negative beliefs. Or you can see this, and I put the negative one first to let you go with the positive side. If you believe, hey, I can do something. And if it's, I start with little things when I'm doing this, you build up a certain potential. That leads into the right actions. You're doing things, and that leads to results. And then, yes, I have a result here, and it was accepted. That makes your beliefs positive, saying, okay, I can do something here. Yeah, I will try even more. You build a higher potential, get more interactions, you will get better results, which again will feed your positive beliefs. Yeah, and so you suddenly have a positive feedback. I'm going to tell you one thing. It is your decision whether you use the positive version of that or the negative version of this feedback loop. So it's your choice doing that. And the first thing is drop limiting beliefs. You're good enough. You've learned your job. Go out there and do it. Build potential, perform actions, receive results, and then again, feed your positive beliefs to be able to move on. Second point is, stop believing, uh, stop, stop being the nice girl or the nice boy. Very often we want to please people. We say, hey, yes, and hmm, I understand. Uh, don't do this. Go your own way. It's your life. It's your professional life. It's your results. It's your feedback loop that you have. Not everybody needs to love you. Present you the, the way you are and present, stand for what you do. Stand for your knowledge, for your professionalism. Go on there. And this, this is this, the, the, this is the down, no, not the downturn. This is the other part of it is you will take responsibility. Yeah? Responsibility means you are able to respond. Responsibility. Yeah? Be able to respond. It's about you. It's about only you. Then if you take responsibility, you can respond. If you give away responsibility, you say, ah, no, okay, I made a suggestion, but it's your decision that you have here. You are not responsible for anymore, but you cannot respond anymore. With this one, be positive. Just be a very positive person in this one. To summarize this very quick overview about the, let's say, motivational, personal development uh, part of this podcast, success is not easy. You have to give up something to reach success. Time, you have to invest time, focus, uh, you have to, to do things to, to move forward. You have to take risks, of course you can fail. And never fear failure, learn from your defeats. Now, failure is the best way to learn. Or I heard one saying, failure is the second best way to learn. The best one is Google. All right, we can see it like this, but you can learn a lot of this. At the very end, follow your intuition. 
Final statement here is it's easier to move on than to stay where you are. Love it, change it, or leave it. Either you love the environment you're in or you can change it. And if you have done all this, if you try to love it and it doesn't work and you've tried to change it and it doesn't work, then think about leaving it, moving on, saying, hey, I will need to do something different. There are environments out there that will value you with your knowledge. And then leave a company and say, okay, if you don't want to have my HMI input, my knowledge, my professionalism, somebody else will love it. All right, this was my overview on the 3P principle that I have. So 3P stands for processes. I ran through all the processes in a very generic overview way. If you want to have a certain HMI development, you don't know how to do it, give me a call. The parameters, what needs to be done. I have written a book uh, about all these parameters, uh, which is called 100 uh, Rules to Design the Perfect Automotive uh, User Interface. Um, it is not on a level I want to have it, so I'm, it's not on sale anymore. But if you want to have a copy, send me an email. It's written in English, so you can, you can read it. Um, send me a mail. I will send you a copy of this one, of, of some of the preprints. Um, there's a lot of content in it, much more uh, than I've talked about it. Many more parameters uh, compared to what I have discussed here in these 45 minutes. And the third one, the third P, is personality. How do you put yourself in a position that will allow you to get through with your opinion on a technology-oriented organization? That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an unknown exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites peter-rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de Write me an email on the podcast at beyond-hmi.de Tune in next time, take care and stay healthy.